Well, the good news is I went to a grocery store here in East Nashville the other day, and there was a fellow who walked up to me, and he was nice enough to say that he liked my music and he enjoys this show. But the bad news is I was holding a box of tampons at the time. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee and I have two cats sitting right next to me. This is a personal journal, this is a bit of an experiment, and I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it and everything else is an artificial filter. And this is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Darden Smith. Darden is a singer-songwriter who lives in Austin, Texas, and you can find out everything you need to know about Darden at dardensmith.com. Darden stopped by the house, and uh, we sat in my living room and recorded this conversation. Then afterwards, we talked for about an hour and a half, and he's got a lot of great stories, And he looks at things differently. And I really appreciate being around people who think differently. So I think you're going to enjoy this. Here's Darden Smith. I was born in Brenham, Texas. It's a little town uh, between Austin and Houston. And uh, right there in the middle, it's uh, central Texas, and it's uh, Washington County, and it's real beautiful. I grew up on a farm and uh, a bunch of land and stuff. And uh, I spent a couple of years in Dallas when I was a kid, uh, first and second grade, but we moved back to the farm, uh, and I spent those years doing that. It was great. It was a great place to grow up. I had cows and chickens and the whole thing. When I was in the fifth grade, I had 100 chickens, you know. And uh, my mother used to drive me around the county delivering eggs. That was my first business. And I had cows. I had my own, you know, string of, had my own string of cattle, and and then lost my ass in the cattle business. I had to sell out when I was in the eight, right before I went went into the eighth grade. My family moved into the suburbs of Houston, so we had to sell all of our cattle. I lost my ass. So that was my first preparation for the music business. Actually, was <laughs> going into the cattle business, and uh, I figured if I could last that, I could maybe make it in the music business. And then I moved to, uh, but the, so then I moved into the suburbs of Houston. So I went to high school, North Houston. It was really a shock. I, I grew up, uh, you know, in this little town where everybody was everybody was related. It was like a German, Czech, Polish community. You know, Brenham was a lot of Germans and Czechs and Poles, and about fifty, about almost fifty percent black. You know, African American, and so I, that's what I grew up with. And everybody was kind of related, and it was, you know, I mean, people's aunts were their teachers in school. And then I moved to this suburb where it was like a, you know, living across the street from a golf course, you know, in a planned community. It was weird for me. It was very strange. Uh, no one was related, and and there were people from all over the country. It was very transient. They moved a lot. Um, but that's when I started aggressively writing songs. I'd written a couple. I started writing when I was 10. But then I was so lonely and weird, and I just sort of sat in my room and 
and um, just wrote songs all the time. The first concert I ever went to was uh, the Doobie Brothers and Marshall Tucker, you know, and that was great because I found I found a it was at this outdoor stadium at the University of Houston. And uh, these friends of mine, we, I went with these two friends of mine, and we found a, a baggie of, of dope on our way into the stadium. So we were hooked up for the concert. <laughs> Everybody liked us. And we were, I think we were freshmen in high school or whatever. But then, you know, um, what was, uh, it was good because I, I had my brother. My brother is three years older than me. Uh, so when he turned 18, which was the legal drinking age at the time, I stole his ID out of his wallet, why he wouldn't know that his little brother would want his ID, I don't know. But anyway, so I had his ID so I could go to any of the clubs in Houston because I looked just like him, and I was big for my age. So, um, man, I saw uh, I saw Guy Clark when I was um, 15. It was great. Gary Nicholson was playing guitar with him, too. It was really cool. So uh, I saw Guy Clark. Uh, I saw Towns. I saw... Um, Michael Murphy, the whole Texas music thing. I was really into that uh, whole scene. I saw Willie, you know, probably f- five times by the time I got out of high school. Waylon, Charlie Daniels, Marshall Tucker, that whole scene, too. I was way into that. Uh, there was a guy in Houston named John Vandiver, who uh, I used to go see John Vandiver all the time. And uh, that was my first sort of, um, sort of realization of how maybe I could, how I could, fit into music was I heard John Vandiver play on the radio, live on the radio. It was just a guy on a guitar singing songs, and he was so rhythmic and soulful. And, and I was like, okay, that's how you do it. That That's the, that's the deal right there. And uh, But no, I used to go see, I mean, B.W. Stevenson, uh, Willis Allen Ramsey, um, John Prine. I saw John Prine when I was 16 or 17. Um you know, so I was just this music. So every every a lot, of, a lot of weekends, I would go into Houston. There was a place called the Texas Opry House, and I would go in there, and I, I would go in by myself a lot of times because none of my friends. I mean, they just didn't want to go see the songwriter thing that I was way into. They just like so I would go in by myself, or my girlfriend sometimes would go with me. And, and uh, but I I come from a family that's completely non musical. You know, my grandfather played the fiddle and was a and a harmonica. But he was a carpenter and a farmer and all that stuff. And uh, so he was really the only musical connection I had within my family. My parents not only didn't play music, they barely sang in church. And uh, they also didn't trust, you know, I didn't know any musicians. I didn't know any professional musicians uh, growing up at all. So I, I knew that it was happening in Austin, but really I didn't know how it worked. And there was no sort of encouragement at all to be counter sort of counter to the the prevailing you know lifestyle of the you know sort of straight ahead get a job thing there, there was no encouragement and i mean my dad actually told me at one time that music is a hobby but it's not a career and, i mean he was right but anyway <laughs> uh no um i mean he's a big supporter now he's a huge fan now uh just he just that was just not their world that they came from and uh, music and uh, anything sort of counter, I mean, it was like, you know, anything counter to the prevailing thing was, was dangerous. And so I, j- I just, so seeing those guys and seeing that they were from Texas and they were, they, you could talk to them. I mean, you could go to the, you could go to these clubs and, and actually talk to these people. And I was writing songs already. Um, and so, um I mean, I talked to, I, you know, actually spoke with Guy Clark when I was 16 or 17 and 
and uh, Murph, Michael Murphy in the back of the club, I went back. I just walked into the dressing room, and there he was when the Gonzos, John Inman, and all those guys were there. I, I met them, you know. And um, so they were real people. So I knew that they were, I, you know, it, it's funny when you're a kid because there's like, like, you know, this sort of Disney world that's out there. You, 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 it's not really real until you meet, you actually meet the people and you connect with them and you can shake their hands and you realize, oh, these guys that were on stage, they're actually human beings. And they're not really that much older than I am. You know, some of them were in their late 20s at that time. And it was like, oh, it's, I, can, I think I can maybe do this. My first real tour that I did was in 1986. Um, I got a record deal and sort of, you know, I was a kid. And it's what happens. You, you get a record deal and these agents start sniffing around. Um, and they're trying to get you on their roster. So they give you, you know, you're a kid. You know, I didn't know anything about early playing music on stages. and But they give you all these great, amazing opening act slots, you know, that you don't really deserve. You just get it just because you're just cause the agent. And uh, so my first tour was going across um, Canada with Emmylou Harris. So I show up, I'd never been really, I'd never played in front of more than maybe like 50 people, you know. And I traveled in the, around the country. I used to travel through the southeast, but playing in little gigs, you know, and like been to California a couple times. And, but um, uh, yeah, my first gig with Emmy uh, was in Vancouver at the Commodore, at, wasn't at the Commodore Ballroom. It was another like pretty large, it was like 2,500 people, you know, and it was sold out. It was like, you know, and I remember just like going, oh my God. God, you know, what am I going to do? And I, <laughs> I walked on stage and, and started singing, and it was, and like, you know, I was just bombed. It was just awful, you know? And it was so bad that when I finished my last song and I took my guitar off, the applause stopped before I could put my guitar on the stand. <laughs> That's how bad it was, man. <laughs> And I mean, it was bad. And I just walked off stage and I was just, I was shell shocked. I was walking off stage going, oh my God, that was awful. I'm terrible. And I walk off stage and as I'm walking directly towards the side of the stage, I look up and there's Emmy Lou standing right there watching me. She'd been watching the whole set. And I walk off stage and I go, hi, I'm, I'm Darden. I'm, uh, nice to meet you. And she goes, and she pats me on the shoulder and she goes, don't worry, it'll get better. <laughs> Which was this clear acknowledgement in a beautiful Emmylou Harris way. As a matter of fact, you did suck, but uh, you'll get better. And it did, it got better. And, and uh, But I did a lot of, I, I loved, I got really into doing opening acts and I loved doing opening acts uh, at that time. So I did a lot of stuff. Um, I went on the road with Roseanne Cash and uh, Rodney Crowell later on after that. Uh, I did shows with some bizarre people like uh, I opened up for, um, you know, a lot of country acts because I had a country deal, you know. So um, Tammy Wynette, I did nice. shows with Tammy Wynette. That was cool. Nice. Uh, yeah, the best. That was great because uh, uh, it was in a, it was in a, uh, um, like a gymnasium in Long Island or Cape Cod, you know, out there. I don't remember. And uh, I think it was Long Island. Anyway. It was off. The sound was, you know, just like it was a gymnasium, man. You know, we were set up on the side of the, you know, so, and we went out and played. And I was touring the trio. I had a, you know, guitar and acoustic bass and drums. And, and, uh, 
And then we finished and we walked off stage and we're sitting there and Tammy Wynette, I met Tammy, I got her autograph, whole thing. And man, I'm, I'm stood at the, by the monitor board. I wanted to see Tammy Wynette, you know, and she comes on stage and it's like, it's Tammy Wynette. It's like the queen of country music, you know, and she's like, start singing and her monitors just go crazy. I mean, it's just like squeal city. And she's smiling, man, and she makes it through her first song, and she comes over to the monitor board. She's just smiling away, and she goes, you better fix those monitors. I'm going to cut your balls off. And just <laughs> smiles and just walks right back at you. Never misses the beat. The band kicks in, and she looks at him, and she goes, she points her finger. <laughs> I was just like, whoa. One of the last like big tours I did like that was I uh, got this call to go um, – on the road with Stevie Nicks. And um, uh, it, the only reason I got the gig, it's like Stevie, uh, she sleeps with, apparently she's at that time, I don't know, but she uh, sleeps with the radio on, okay? And she woke up in the middle of the night. It was in Phoenix, where she lives, and uh, she heard this song that was on one of my records at the time, a song called Levy, The Levy Song. And um, anyway, she heard it. She wrote it down. And she, next day she had her assistant go out and get the my record, you know? And uh, so we had the same agent again. It was one of the agent things. And um, so apparently uh, they sent Stevie Nicks a list of names for possible opening acts. And she sat around with you know, like four friends at dinner looking at this list. And they happened to recognize my name. And it was just like, and they went, oh, yeah, let's have him. It was like, it was no like strategic thinking at all. It was just, and they called me and they went, you want to go on the road with Stevie Nicks? I was like, uh, yeah, you know, why not? <laughs> and uh, so I was solo. I was going out and open these gigs solo. It was really weird. I mean, it was like, you know, eight, 9,000 people a night. What was cool is that um, Stevie, apparently she, um, she was very nice to me. She, I mean, she'd asked me, she paid me really great. You know, I got paid way more than most opening acts get paid. And, um, um, Russ Conkle was in the band. Russ Conkle was playing drums, and and Lenny Castro was playing percussion. And I knew Lenny from playing on her. He played on one of my records, and uh, so it was cool. It was really. I mean, Rick Vito was playing guitar. It was it's great. And um, but Stevie kind of walked on stage. You know, walked into up to the monitor board while I was playing the first night, and she looked. She had this huge ornate set, and she goes, "They can't see him." on my set because it's just him he's just you know he's lost go buy go buy a black scrim so th she paid for this black scrim to go behind me so that i would show up when i walked out on stage i mean i thought that was she probably spent five thousand dollars on a scrim oh man i just thought that was really cool That's and beautiful after yeah i was really like wow and she said be sure and the other thing she she's she's i heard that later that her, she said to the the sound guy be sure and turn him up because quite often the opening acts will get turned, you just don't get the volume, you know. And uh, but the the best part about that tour was um, after the I think the third gig, uh, I didn't realize it, but I was on parole for the first gig, first two gigs, just to see if they liked not really my music, but sort of do I it was was I the kind of person that they wanted to hang around with. So and once I passed that audition, I was kind of. Um, Agree. It was confirmed that I could do the rest of the tour, but then after the, I think the next gig, um, after my, after their set, her and uh, Stevie and Russ Conkle came to my dressing room, 
And I'm going, oh, well, it's over. You know, <laughs> that was a nice tour. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. But they said, um, hey, we were wondering if you would like to play uh, on Dreams because we don't have a rhythm guitar player. So they had two guitar players, but none of them would just stand over there and just strum the guitar, which you have to do for Stevie Nicks music. You have to have somebody just strumming. It's like, ja, 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 ja. you know, that's what that music is based on that. And I was like, well, really? And they said, yeah. And so that was my first. And so I learned the songs. And by the end of the tour, I was doing half the set with them. That's the first band I was ever in. As far as being in a band, as opposed to running, I mean, I was in some high school bands, but like, as far as like being in a like, it's the only band I've ever been in was Stevie Nicks. It was cool, man. I like got to like sit there and look at Russ Conkle play and actually figure out like, okay, wow, there's a different. I got a whole lot more respect for people whose whose lives are built around backing other people up. It's a really different way to play music. I spent most of my life in front of the microphone. And so there's a whole different mindset, and um, there's a whole different level. You have to think about it completely different, and, and it, you got to do it right every night. And if you're the guy on the microphone, it's you can mess up. I think those guys are the best players in the world. Yeah, it's incredible. And uh, but it was also cool to see them uh, make mistakes and laugh through it. Just keep smiling and keep playing. You know, they all drop a beat every now and then. People hit bum notes. It's like, but if you smile. And don't let that become, it was actually a couple of great lessons learned. Uh, don't let that become the night. You know, it's just one beat out of tons. So just keep going and keep smiling, you know, and just keep moving. And that was, that was actually great to see those players at that level. Every now and then, I mean, they're humans, you know, they make, they're not machines, they make mistakes. About 10 years ago, I was getting, I was getting kind of bored with just, singing and being a singer-songwriter and I was um, I was trying to look around for another way to use music um, to function and work and and I was just I was just kind of it was starting to seem monotonous I've been doing it for about you know a long while well, I've been doing it for a long time by then you know almost 20 years and and um, it was just I went my kids were really young my daughter was in preschool and my son was I guess in the fourth grade and and I was hanging around their schools, and I was realizing that the, the art and music teachers, they're completely overworked, and they were able to kind of teach uh, project-based art, but they weren't actually able to really talk about creativity very much. And um, so I came up with this idea of how to talk in schools, how to go around to schools and talk about creativity, and where does creativity come from, and, and how, to make your, how to base your life on being creative, you know? And uh, the, the principle is art, artistic thinking comes from attention, intention, and doing what you love. And no matter if you're a quote-unquote professional artist or not, it's like anyone can put that in their life and have a better day. You know, even if you, even if you have a better, you know, five minutes of your day, if every day you do that, you'll have a little joy and you control your joy. Um, so I started going around to schools and it was weird in that I found that I really enjoyed it. I never thought I was a teacher, but I found out that I really liked this. And I used the sort of collaborative songwriting in the classroom uh, to illustrate that kids are able to do more than they think they can do. So I would write a song with the whole classroom. And I'd go, like, who's got an idea? And they'd start throwing out ideas. And, and we write a song based on these ideas. And the song takes, like, 
I don't know, 10 minutes at max, 10 minutes. And it's so I was able to show them um, that, you know, many more things are possible than maybe what they think. And it could be that kid that's sitting in the back of the room that gets no encouragement, that gets no positive uh, uh, feedback on maybe he's a little weird, you know, a little weird. I mean, those weird kids are the ones, I mean, our, the music business is, is based on people that are weird, you know, a little different. I mean, that's what makes it tick. And uh, if those kids are in the back of the room and no one's encouraging them at home or if they're kind of shot down or they never hear the word yes, I mean, we might, they just may not ever reach their potential of what they could do. So I started doing it. I started it in Austin in schools there, and then I started getting asked to do it around the country. People heard about it. I put it on my website, and people started asking me, and then I started getting asked to do it in England. Um, I did it in, I've done it all over Europe, uh, England, France, um, Germany, a lot of international schools over there, but, but, you know, in almost probably half the States in America have done it. Um, and that, from that experience, I got, I, I started getting asked to do some really strange projects because people found out that I could do this sort of songwriting thing with these large groups of people. So I started doing conflict resolution work using songwriting. Um, I did some work with uh, like an Israeli-Palestinian group. Yeah, that was crazy, man. Like these like Israeli, uh, is a group of Israeli Jews, Israeli Christians, and, and Muslims from the West Bank. And uh, we were in a castle outside of Stuttgart for, for two or three days. And I was, writing, I was getting them to write songs together where they were like at each other's throats part of the time. But they were, I mean, they were amazing. They were young adults, you know. And that was really incredible. So the, just the, the creative process just break down barriers. Or? The creative process breaks down barriers, and, and you know, I would do things like um, we found out that um, they all knew the same folk song. And I was like, "Oh, you all know this melody?" Because the, the one of the uh, Palestinian girls play started playing the song, and this Israeli girl walked over and started singing it. And I was like, "Wow!" So you know, this is like. I mean, because really, it's a small piece of land over there, and the music is, you know, the culture and and music is is intertwined and all this kind of stuff in a, in, a, in a way. I guess I've never really experienced that, but you know. And I went, oh, okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to take this melody, and we're going to keep the chorus, and then we're going to split you up into the Israelis here, the Israeli Jews here, the Israeli Christians, and the Muslims. Each of you go to your groups, and tell me your story. Write your story based on this song form. And, you know, I just spent the afternoon going, just kind of rotating between their three groups. At the end of it, we had, we had their stories all in this song. So they had written this song together that told each one of their stories, and the great thing was that story was the same. All three stories were basically the same story. You know, this is our land. We believe this is our religion. This is our, we believe in this. This is the land of our grandmothers. This is like, it's the same thing. And that was amazing. And they wound up, it did help sort of bring them together in an interesting way. So that, you know, just knowing that I could do these kind of things, uh, it's gone off into a lot of different areas. It's a, uh, the Be an Artist program is one strain of it where it's really school-based. And then there's another part of it that's songwriting with and that goes into all kinds of different areas. Uh, I work in a homeless shelter in Newark, New Jersey, uh, a place called Covenant House, where I go in there and I write songs with homeless uh, 
teenagers, you know, it's like as intense as it can get, you know. And uh, but then also songwriting with soldiers came out of that, and and what songwriting with soldiers is about was is um, we put together retreats um, with three or four uh, professional songwriters and ten to twelve, uh, sometimes a few more uh, wounded soldiers, and most of them, all of them have PTSD, but some of them have traumatic brain injury or or you know some 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 of them have physical um, uh, amputations and things like that, you know, so. Um, and we spend the weekend letting them talk. They're not songwriters, and we don't teach. We don't teach songwriting. That's not what it's about. It's about them talking, and we he- hear their hear their stories and and write songs based on their stories and based on their words, using their words, their story. And the cool thing I learned, and I learned this first with the uh, first with the Palestinians. It was the first place I the Palestinian Israeli group. And then I saw it a lot with the um, with the homeless kids in, in in Newark. Was that when people speak about uh, trauma, when it when they're when they've had trauma in their lives and it's something they've been living with, they use very simple words because it's a fact of their life, you know. And very simple words is what songs are based on. Great song hooks come from language, come from common language, and the turning of those phrases. And so with the soldiers, I mean, they're dealing with things that are like beyond, I mean, I never was a soldier, you know, so um, it's all new. And they say the most incredible things, and they're incre- a lot of them are very, very poetic people and beautiful uh, minds. And um, so we take their stories and, and turn them into words, and we, we, we consider them co-writers. We register them with ASCAP, um, if, you know, if we're going to make records and stuff. And if any of the songs get, you know, get any traction in sort of the commercial world, they would share in the royalties. It's their story. And, uh, there's a, what I'm fascinated. I mean, it's, it's, it's really what keeps me going and doing that kind of work. Cause I still make records and write and tour and all that stuff. But what I love most about that work is a, it has nothing to do with show business at all. It has nothing to do with the music business. And it's so refreshing to pull music um, to pull back into where uh, it's it's music for music's sake, which is why I got into music in the first place. You know, I never cared about about charts when I was sixteen years old, sitting in my room writing songs. I just wanted to tell a story, and that's what this is about: is telling a story and um, using using like the craft that that I've been working on and all the people that I work with, we've been working on it for, you know, all of our lives practically to use it, not for a showbiz reason, but to use it to actually be of service to someone else and know that we can do this thing. And what we take for granted as musicians, other people view as alchemy. I mean, it's really amazing. We take a bunch of words, feelings, we put them with a melody and we create this thing Get this song that then they can listen to, and there's a there's a there's a real power in the collaborative qualities in that, and something transfers between uh, the 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 person who's telling a story and the person who's listening to the story, and when you tell your everyone wants to tell your everyone wants to tell a story everyone's got a story but everyone wants to tell a story. Just like I'm sitting here doing right now, I want to tell the story, and uh, for someone to hear the story 
and to hear it enough to write a song with it. I don't know what I don't know what it does, but it does something in that process, and uh, it brings about a shift in the soldiers and in the songwriters. Everyone that works, the volunteers that come and work, the the everybody from the caterer to the, the people that come and just kind of help facilitate the, the retreat. Everyone is kind of transformed over the course of the weekend uh, in this really amazing way. It's, it's I've never experienced anything like that. I've never done work. Any, I've never, I didn't know that songwriting could do this. You were on The Tonight Show? Twice. Any memories of uh, that? Yeah, uh, so I, I did the Tonight Show twice. I did it once on once for my record, and then I did it. I was actually on on it with Stevie Nicks. I um, I was I wormed my way into her gig as well, and made myself in, indispensable. And um, so yeah, I uh, um, I was on the Tonight Show when when Len, so Leno was doing it, and uh, it was when Branford Marsalis was still uh, the musical director, and I played a song called Loving Arms. And um, I think it cost like ten, it cost me all in like ten grand or something to do that because you had to fly the band in. You get paid like nothing, you know. And uh, <laughs> it's like you think Tonight Show, all right? Yeah. Oh, it's like it costs you money to play on the Tonight Show. You know? It's like crazy. <laughs> and uh, I think they pay you like three or four hundred bucks. I mean, that's it. You know, I mean, it was something stupid. And and at the end of my set, Leno walked over and said, "Hey, it's great." You know, that was a very I was the very last one you know and i said thank you and because i said thank you on national tv on network tv i had to join a damn union <laughs> <laughs> but the best part of the whole day was um so you get there really early in the morning and uh you rehearse and leno man he's there those guys were there by the time we got there and they'd been there for two hours working writing i mean those guys work hard you know and um so I uh, had I knew I was playing the Tonight Show and I knew like you know who the band was and all that kind of thing. So I said okay. So I got this barbecue joint in uh, Austin to ship out barbecue. I you know dry ice. They shipped it out there and we I paid for it. You know and they shipped all this. Oh, I mean tons of barbecue out there. You know, well the band is from New Orleans, man. You know so like Leno, <laughs> Leno after the show, Jay Leno comes up and he goes, hey, I just wanted to tell you, you know, it's like. Uh, or maybe it was before the show. He goes, I heard you sent some barbecue out. I said, yeah. Did you get any? He goes, no, the band ate it all. <laughs> <laughs> so those guys ate all the barbecue. But right before, uh, right before you, uh, the, the, right before I was on, you know, I'm standing there and there's, I'm behind this curtain and the band's all there. Kenny Kirkland was playing piano with us. It was the Deborah Dobbs was playing percussion, you know, and, and uh, Brantford was around, and I had to kind of talk to him, you know. But we were on, we were both on Columbia, so I had that sort of connection, and we knew some of the same people in Columbia. And uh, right before they raised the curtain, Brantford comes up, and, and and he's like walking right to me, and I think, oh yeah, great, he's going to give me like the thumbs up and the encouragement. He goes, "You nervous?" I went, "Kind of." And he goes, well, "Don't worry, man. It's only ten million people." <laughs> <laughs> And just turned around and walked off. It's only 10 million people, man. And, and Kenny Kirkland, I looked over at Kenny, man. Kenny was sitting at the piano, and he's just shaking his head, just going, oh, my God. Every, and he goes, every night. After he told me, he goes, every night. Every night he does that. But um, it was great. So when they raised the curtain, I couldn't breathe. I literally, I was so freaked out, I could not breathe. And I, it just was just like this band started, and I was like, 
and finally, right before I started singing, I just went, <gasps> I took a breath. But after that, it was fine. You know, I mean, to be nervous, but, but it, was, uh, yeah, it was it was hilarious, <laughs> you know. Yeah, great. I think that story sums up the music business in general. It, to me, it does, you know. It's just like, first off, it's like it has nothing to do. I think it's a big myth about that kind of thing and that, you know, uh, you make this record and you put your heart and soul into it and then you know nothing happens or something happens and it's very easy for us to equate that or or make it mean something about us and make it mean something about our music and it really do, it's like at a certain point whether or not you get recognized or get on the tonight show just to use that as an example it really has nothing to do with you it just has to do with your agent and it has to do with your record company and it has to do with some person sitting at a desk at the tonight show just do they like do they like how this looks and do they think it like fits or whatever? We haven't had a guy this week, you know. We've had well, we haven't you know we've had too many puppies this week, so we'll have a songwriter or whatever. It's like that's all. It's just like after you do it and you get around some of that, you realize yeah, at a certain point everybody's good, you know. Everybody at a certain everybody's at a certain level. So then it's it's just like luck, but you can't make it mean like more or less about you. It just it just happens, you know. Because sometimes you you do a great record and it falls apart and nobody cares. It's like it doesn't mean the record was bad. It just means like it just didn't work, you know. So, or I like to tell myself at least that you know? <laughs> those quiet moments at home alone when <laughs> I'm looking at boxes of records. It's a really good record. <laughs> I have this gig is one of the craziest gigs I've ever had um, that I love is the Oklahoma is um, artist in residence at Oklahoma State and they have this this thing called the uh, Institute for Innovation and Creativity and the way I got this gig I wrote this song with Radney Foster called Angel Flight and uh, which started the whole songwriting with soldiers sort of thing it came out of Angel Flight but um, so. I got kind of, I started getting calls for people that who could you come do things for soldiers and veterans and stuff and I got a call one day from some friends of mine who teach in the school of entrepreneurship at Oklahoma State and uh, which is in the business school and they were doing a boot camp for um, soldiers an entrepreneurship boot camp you know how to start a business and run a business and all this stuff and they they wondered if I could come up and like talk to the soldiers and sing you know and do and do like a presentation basically do the be an artist program for these soldiers with these soldiers and um so i said yeah you know so i came up and did that and uh afterwards this guy walks up one of the professors there really great guy a uh, really brilliant man he comes up and he goes uh you've never done that before have you like like done it with soldiers like in what you were talking about you've never You've never really done that, have you? And I went, well, you know, I kind of, not really, no. <laughs> I said, I've done the songwriting thing, you know, but I kind of was just kind of winging. He goes, that was really great. And he goes, I'd like to work with you. I was like, really? He goes, yeah, let's like, let's, let's have a, stick around. Let's have a meeting tomorrow. Went, oh, okay. So, and I was walked away going, I think they're about to offer me something. And I don't know even what to ask for. But I've always been the kind of guy that I say, People ask me if I can do something. Usually, I say sure, no problem, and then I go figure out how to do it, you know. And um, so, uh, I just kind of got in my head like, okay, I want to be an artist in residence here. I want to like have this gig, 
And because uh, I, I was also at a place, it was about three years ago. I was getting kind of bored again. I get bored pretty easy, and I was just looking for something to spark me and challenge me in a way that I hadn't been challenged. And I'd never, you know, it's like God, I have a, an undergraduate degree that qualifies me to vote. You know, it's like I have no, you know, qualifications to teach anyone. And um, and the idea of entre- the the school of entrepreneurship was when I was I was brought in for that, and uh, you know, in this sort of artist in residence thing. But they offered this to me. They offered me something, and I said, "Well, how about artist in residence?" And they went, "Oh, well, we've never had one of those." I said, "Well, you can you can have me, you know." And they said, "Yes." I couldn't believe it. Then I was like, "Oh shit! What am I gonna do? What am I gonna do?" You know. So I got this gig, and and um, the first day. I went to this class. I watched this guy teach this entrepreneurship class. And I turned to this great, this, the guy who brought me in, and I turned to him and I said, so let me see if I got this straight. Uh, these are people teaching, and they don't, they've never really, most of them have never worked in, like, run companies. And they're talking to kids who've never worked about being self-employed. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, that's it. I said, got it. You know, <laughs> which meant I could do anything. So I use that because um, I'm in my th- I'm starting my third year as the artist in residence there, and uh, I I use it as a way to both like do research for myself on kind of what sparks me, creativity, and and look for new ways to um to, to for myself to, like to find new ways to talk about creativity and new ways to think about creativity and new ways to act on creativity. And then I do, I do lectures. So I go up there a couple of times a semester, like two times a semester for two or three days. And uh, I do, I work across, because I'm no longer in the school of entrepreneurship. I'm in this Institute for creativity. I go across the whole department, all the school. I talk to like ag departments. I'll talk to architecture. I'll talk to English psychology. You know, I do this. I do athletics. You know, I'll go and talk to that. You know, so do all of them. And I talk about how to see yourself as this creative person, and how to how to talk about. And I have exercises that I do with them. But how to think about? You don't have to be different than who you are. You have to be more like yourself to be happy. Just be more like yourself. It's like, and, and at that age, these kids are kind of baffled with, I mean, I remember being that age. It's like, it's a mysterious time, you know, and you're kind of baffled with, okay, I see some people that are really have it together and some people that don't have it together at all. And I, what's the best way to go? And I think I want to do this, but everybody's telling me to do that. And I don't, you know, it's like, if I could really, I just want to be this over here and I don't have a family that encourages that or that, you know. And so my thing is to go in and, and say to those kids, be be who you want to be. So I just go in and I do um, classes, lectures. Um, I do a lot of mentoring, a lot of one-on-one mentoring with students. That's great. Kids come up and they just have they have, they have these burning questions they want to ask, and so we sit down and have coffee and I talk to them and and um, you know I've developed ways of talking about things and and exercises for them to do and I give them what I call the twenty questions list. You know, the question, 20 questions is just like, I wish somebody had given me those 20 questions when I was 20 years old. It was like, saved me a lot of time. Um, so that's, and I really, I really enjoy it. It's really, really interesting. Do you have those 20 questions on your website? I don't have the 20 questions on my website. It, it's it, because I kind of customize it for every person. Yeah. I sort of, you know, and, uh, but it's, um, it's basically, you know, why are you doing this? 
so there's a lot of why yeah. like why are you doing this and and uh <clears throat> you know what 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 would happen if you were really successful like what would that be like and then what would happen if you doubled that and not money successful you can make money you make money anyway but like what would happen if you were really your wildest dream like what would that be like and are you prepared for that you know are you ready for that and and what happens if you don't get it could that be okay too and so it's these questions that like i didn't you know i i, I didn't i wasn't hip to that until i had a crash in my career about thinking like that you know yeah. where can you be happy if you're not the movie that you have in your mind is that okay can you be okay with that so that's what i do i go and do that and uh those are great questions man great to see you man yeah thank you Otis. i appreciate you coming over to the living room and hanging out uh, joy <laughs> i'll have to see you in austin yeah man. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Darden for coming over to my living room and recording this conversation. You can find out everything you need to know about Darden at DardenSmith.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy... We'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave us a comment. Subscribe while you're there. You'll get a brand new episode every Wednesday for free. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.